0: Tony is a fourth-generation farmer who works alongside his father to manage the family property Naritagar, located southeast of Canambal. The singles primarily run a winter and summer cropping program with the aim to maximise the productivity of stored soil moisture. In this episode, Tony explains why every decision on farm, from crop selection to spraying weeds, is influenced by this desire to make every drop count. You'll also hear that Tony is aware of the potential risks within their farming system, naming herbicide resistance as a major one. It's because of this the Singles have ventured into the ag tech space, designing a weed mapping system called Singleshot, which utilises drones to identify weed populations across the farm and helps determine when it's best to spray to maximise efficiency. Local Land Services Cropping Officer, Tim Bartemote, caught up with Tony for this chat on a strangely clear sky afternoon around the kitchen table at Narritogar.
1: Welcome back everyone to the podcast. Today we're here with Tony Single out at Narritogar and it's a bit unusual, it's a bit warm, a bit dry. What do you reckon Tony? Welcome to the podcast by the way.
2: Thanks Tim, well, great to be here. Looks can be deceiving with that introduction, there's obviously some Very significant challenges at the moment in that we've got crops sort of on the verge of maturity and looking around yesterday, sort of working out what we're going to do. And there's still water running out of mature crops and paddocks and so on and plenty more in the forecast. There's plenty of opportunities that comes with weather like this, but I think there's some very real and very significant challenges over the next month that might make life Fairly difficult, and I guess it's just a wait and see game. We can realise the opportunities of this, whether or not it becomes more about storing our moisture for next year and start with a full profile next year and go again.
1: Sounds like a great place to start. So, can you explain to the listeners where we are?
2: Yeah, so we're 50 kilometres southeast of Canamble. on the northeast corner of the Warren Bungles. We're sort of the first flat country, sort of coming off the Warren Bungles. We do have a bit of slope across the country, and I'd say our climate is probably marginally different to Canamble, but very significantly different to Coonabaraburin. So that if you look at harvest timings, we're usually a day or two behind Canambal, but sort of maybe even a week, 10 days, even a fortnight behind Coonabaraburin. We consider ourselves Coonabaraburin country and the climate certainly changes rapidly from the east of us.
1: So what do you do here at Narragha?
2: The focus of our farm business here is very much cropping and then that's driven by gross margins that we're achieving. On that basis, we crop about two-thirds of the farm, and then we basically fill in the gaps with trade cattle, which is, yeah, look, it's a nice little enterprise and there's some decent margins there, but it doesn't compete with cropping, but in saying that, it's it's very effective in in utilising the country that's not suitable for the cropping sort of things.
1: And how long have you been on this farm for?
2: So personally, I've been back here close to 11 years now after starting my career as a trials agronomist, which was a great little job actually. I'm fourth generation back on this farm now. I started with a great-aunt back in the 20s through to my grandfather, dad, and now recently myself.
1: And you run it with a family?
2: Dad's still very active on the farm. So between him and myself, we're still very much full-time, with another full-timer as well. We're probably just starting to push the limits of that at the moment, so we are probably looking to expand our labour force at the moment, but to date, all going well.
1: So you're predominantly cropping, as you said. What's your typical rotation in this part of the world?
2: When you say typical rotations, like I guess – The easy answer is that we don't have a typical rotation in that we're very much reactive to soil moisture levels prior to cropping. So that we're measuring the soil moisture at every planting opportunity, whether or not that be for a winter crop or a summer crop. Then we'll sit back and look at all our paddocks across the farm and put together a rotation before every planting opportunity, whether or not that's the winter crop planting opportunity. April, May, June might be an early sorghum planting in September, October, or even a late sorghum planting in December. And the philosophy behind that is that we just look at basic French and Schultz data use efficiency figures, but we look at starting soil moisture what our likely in-crop growing season rainfall is going to be. We'll potentially look at quartile one versus quartile three rainfall as well and sort of might be influenced a little bit there by the longer term forecast as to which one you place more weight on. But basically what we're doing is we want the odds to be in our favor to maximize the returns that can be generated from the decision point that is planting, which is when you establish a crop. If I go into that a bit further, That basically manifests itself in planting water trigger points, which I guess sort of streamlines the decision making a little bit. So for something like wheat, it's obviously a fairly reliable crop. We're happy to grow that in a bit sort of bit lower starting soil moisture. So we probably want about 60 centimetres of soil moisture to plant wheat, which translates into about 90 millimeters of plant available water. And if we've got that, yeah, like the odds on average rainfall will be that we'll make an acceptable return based off that moisture. Whereas if that moisture's not there, Rule of thumb, will probably say that yeah, the odds aren't in our favour to make an acceptable return based on that moisture, bearing in mind that the input costs for the crop aren't that significant compared to the lost opportunity of not making money out of moisture available in the system. So it's all about maximising return per millimetre of rain.
1: And in a way, could you say it's managing risk in this part of the world? You're like, you're not going to put that expense down initially because there's a lot of upfront costs. If you don't see the likelihood of getting a return based off the probability of how much water you're starting with kind of thing.
2: It's absolutely managing risk. That's exactly what it is, but it's not about establishing those upfront costs. It is obviously cropping is getting more and more expensive and obviously the margins are changing a little bit, but the bigger factor is it's all about moisture. So the really big cost of making a bad decision is not turning moisture into money basically. So if we've got a full profile, we want to be choosing a crop that's going to generate a decent return accordingly off that. Or if we don't have a lot of soil moisture, we get in crop, relatively average in crop rainfall, we don't get much of a yield we're not making a big return off that moisture, that's a massive opportunity cost when we could have fallowed that paddock instead through to either a summer crop or winter crop next year and generated a much better return with a higher starting soil moisture. And then you're not so reliant on in-crop rainfall and you've sort of got a much better chance of generating an acceptable profit off the moisture available to you in the system.
1: Is that system primarily driven by the fact that you have soils with high water holder capacity that allows you to operate this way?
2: yeah a very big component of it. I'm not saying that our system doesn't have crossover with lower water holding capacity soils, but it's certainly a big factor. The other big factor in our approach is that here at Canamble, where our rainfall is slightly summer dominated, so it's you know summer storms are a fairly substantial part of our rainfall, so we're bearing that in mind our rainfall is highly variable. That's probably the other big factor in that it's a way of maximizing our chances of making a profit and making sure the business is sustainability over the next five to ten years so it's it's not about looking at maximizing one to two year returns it's about we measure our performance based on our average return over five to ten years that's the ultimate goal of what we're trying to achieve
1: so have you found this system working in the last few seasons where it's just like buckets of water everywhere
2: well let's just go back say to the end of 2016 so there's some really Contrasting years there that probably highlight exactly what we do. In the through 17, 18, 19, we pulled our cropping frequencies right back. We had some wins through there, particularly with some Longfellow out of 2016, growing wheat when the markets were good because there wasn't a lot around. 2018, we virtually grew nothing just because, well, the, a, the planning opportunity didn't exist, but b, uh, planting water trigger points weren't met at all. Through to 2019, when our planting water trigger points were just met. We did plant and we literally had planted seed germinating after harvest. That's how bad the season was. In areas we grow up to one and a half to two tonne of to the hectare average yield. And the way pricing was that year, we actually, we came away with a small profit in a horrendous year. And then fast forward to 2020, things started filling up. There were extra factors in 2020 in that we were chasing ground cover. We, our country was blowing a little bit. So we definitely lifted our cropping frequency through 2020 with ground cover very much front of mind you know i had a pretty reasonable year 2020 we didn't quite get the finishing rain then had a big summer 2020-21 basically looking at full profiles before the 2021 cropping season and obviously with full profiles all our plenary water trigger points are met so we went with a 90 um, percent of the farm went to winter crop which we did really well out of despite the very difficult harvest that other 10 percent you go to sorghum, even though the gross margins would say put it all down to winter crop. There's a lot to be said for at least spreading your risk a little bit, particularly the beauty about sorghum is if you're aiming for two consecutive winter fellows, it's a terrific tool to reduce your disease levels and really get on top of your weed seed banks. Yeah, you and know, I think that's been shown by a modelling funded by GRDC that yeah, look, that long fallow certainly has a place in in our cropping systems in terms of maximising long term profitability. The situation was basically mirrored prior to this year. We had full profiles, probably had a fairly similar cropping plan again. We we're hoping to plant 85 to 90% of our area, just with some, some levels of sorghum to keep the diversity in our rotations. But obviously, as it turned out, and I'm sure it did for many people, we just didn't have the opportunity to plant as much as we want. So at the moment, we're probably about 70% winter crop and hoping to get the other 30% down to sorghum, which hasn't happened due to lack of planting opportunities through it being too wet. But we'll certainly still look to establish sorghum this summer if we can.
1: You've mentioned a few different crop types that you might consider depending on moisture. So sorghum, wheat, what other ones would you include in potentially?
2: The mainstays of that cropping rotation is a sorghum and wheat. Obviously wheat is a highly reliable crop for our area. Great reliability of returns for the moisture you got available to your system. And sorghum is key. Our areas have come back just because of the way the rainfall has worked out the past few years, but it's still a critical part of our rotation in that it, it gives us this option to grow two crops in three years. So you're growing two crops, both on long fallow, clean up your weed and disease, and get a really reliable return to manage your risk at the same time. So they're there, so I'd say they're the pillar crops. And then obviously we've got our pulses, which are key for the nitrogen side of things. And up until the last couple of years, chickpeas have delivered some very good returns, but that's obviously changed now. Chickpeas have been a big part of our rotations, even though we don't have any, any in this year. And as a result of the poor returns from chickpeas, we've gone to a few faba beans this year, which we do grow from time to time if the opportunity presents. And look, they're, they're looking great at the moment, but it's going to be a matter of getting them off Oil seeds, So canola is another big one for us as well. We consider canola to be more of an opportunity crop here. I won't grow canola unless we've got a pretty solid profile, so I'm probably talking about a, at least 90 centimetres, but more like a metre wet profile, so sort of calculating out to about 135 to 150 millimetres of plant available water before I'd say that I'm happy to grow canola and the odds are enough in my favour to make a decent return. So that that probably sums up the main crops we'll go to. No,
1: it's a good point to mention, like, canola's not for the faint of heart, really, you the go hard or go home kind of thing
2: you know, the further north you go, canola gets just a little bit trickier in terms of making a reliable return out of it. So we can have some cracking crops, but I guess my perception is that it's potentially also more susceptible to failures. So that's the last thing we want to do. Like we don't want to invest all this time and money in getting a good soil profile and then not convert that into money through a failed canola crop. So, we're always a little bit wary of canola, but in saying that, well, genetics and agronomy has improved very significantly over the last five to 10 years. Yeah, sort of slowly getting a bit more confidence with the crop. Had an exceptional year with canola last year and, and it's looking good again this year. And we'll, we'll certainly look to go again next year on the face of, look, it'd be highly unlikely we don't have full profiles again leading into next year.
1: In case anyone was interested in trialling this, system on their own place. What's your method of measuring soil water?
2: I guess across a paddock across soil types is highly variable. So we don't get too technical about it. Keep it very simple. The actual full on numbers probably not that important. It's just about getting enough information to be able to manage risk. So it's probably a case of getting 75 to 80% of the information to make sure the bulk of your decisions are right. And the reality is like you can have a full profile in this square meter, whereas you walk 10 meters and, and there's bugger all so it's just about getting a handle of averaging the system out. And it's, that comes down to experience a bit. But basically, we just work on for every 10 centimetres of soil, the probe will go down. So that's indicating a um, wet soil. We're working about 15 millimetres of plant available water. And we do vary that figure a little bit. So, you know, at the moment, it's exceptionally wet. You only got to lean on the probe and it'll it'll disappear. So we're probably getting up towards 16, 17 millimetres per 10 centimetres of wet soil. Whereas if you're talking about a drier year going around in March, and you've got to work pretty hard to get the soil moisture probe down to 60 centimeters, you might sort of work on 13 to 14 millimeters of available water per 10 centimeters. Mm, So the old
1: reliable bush probe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that, like, there's obviously a fair bit of background that goes into that. Back in the earlier days, Dad had the soils characterised with digging full-on pits through the profile on the soil and, and measured the water-holding capacity that way. And there's examples of other soils relatively locally on apps, et cetera, that all added weight to that 15 millimetres of plant available per 10 centimetres of wet soil. There is a bit of background work in that, but, yeah, Doc, I think that gives us a really good baseline and more than adequate information to not get too technical about it and keep it relatively simple and just understand that the information doesn't have to be perfect. It's, at the end of the day, it's about managing risk because... Obviously, a lot varies on your growing season. You might have 10% of your growing season rainfall, and the next year you have a decile 10-year, like we are having at the moment in terms of rainfall. So it's not the be-all and end-all. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's just a starting point to gather enough information to hopefully make some good decisions.
1: That's great. Well, thinking more a bit about risk, one of the risks, obviously, with a cropping program, predominantly cropping program, is herbicide resistance. How have you found that here?
2: Well, certainly an area, we're probably a little bit atypical given that we've run regular winter fallows. There's probably not a huge amount of that in this district. So just naturally, we've probably got less herbicide resistance to your group A and Bs in crop herbicides, but we do have some fairly significant issues with glyphosate resistance relying on chemical fallows, particularly through winter. So we've got glyphosate resistance ryegrass. We have done for, we had first had it confirmed in 2005. So been dealing with that for a long time. Obviously, it's the cat's out of the bag to a certain extent already, but we're certainly working very hard to not let it develop any further than, than it already has.
1: And so can you just explain for people your process of how you identified that herbicide resistance on your farm?
2: In the early days, it was just a matter of sending live samples off, getting them confirmed through laboratories and so on that offer those services. We have done seed tests and so on in the past as well, but particularly with ryegrass now, we sort of assume it's in every paddock and just manage it accordingly. So we use a lot of double knocks, lots of paraquat in the system, which works really well. Making that second pass is never fun, but the extra efficacy we're getting out of the paraquat in terms of pulling up weeds on that first knock often translates right through the growing season. So we don't view that second pass as a direct cost to our system. We view it as extremely important to setting up our fallows to ensure that we're not chasing big weeds right through the whole season. And invariably, obviously, with ryegrass, you're always going to get multiple germination events. You're always going to get some survivors through the season, but we certainly try and keep it to a level where chipping is very possible. And our our fallback position is always spray topping, just at that late flowering, early milky dough stage with paraquat, which has been extremely effective. But you know in saying that, definitely got some risks coming up at the moment. In that we do have some low levels of glyphosate resistant ryegrass in our fellows at the moment. We just cannot get onto our country. So I think next couple of days we'll we'll spend on the bike with a hoe and yeah, we'll, we'll make a pretty fair hole in it. Like that's the levels that it's at. It's a really effective management tool, even though it's not the most fun, most glorious job, but it works.
1: So you mentioned that. Your group A's and B's, you're not experiencing much resistance, which is quite uncommon. Those are usually the first to go. What are your thoughts in terms of how has your moisture saving strategy impacted the way that you tackle weeds in terms of having those fallows during the winter?
2: Yeah, like obviously it's a whole of systems approach. So it all goes into the decision making and weeds and disease are very much part of those rotational decisions as well. It's obviously a, it's a holistic process. It is nuanced when you sit down and work out your rotations. But sort of probably back to your question, we've found that we've deliberately tried to steer away from using the typical group A's and B's through in your grasses, so wheat, barley. Obviously, they're high risk to resistance. We've tried to absolutely minimise exposure to weeds. So typically, if we start to get a few weeds build up in a paddock, we'll swing to sorghum. We get our two consecutive winter fallows really clean up our weed seed bank and go into a wheat crop after that yeah from time to time absolutely we do use those tools but we try and use them absolutely sparingly and a real focus on trying to reduce the reliance on select as well like that's obviously a critical chemical so that as long as we can control our grasses in the broadleaf stage of the crop is critical in our rotations as well and to date we have done that with the some very small exceptions yes just through that process we've got country that's been zero tillage exclusively zero tilled crop now since the early 90s with black oats that don't have any group a or b resistance but in the same time these paddocks do have glyphosate resistant ryegrass just by the fact that we've placed more selection pressure on glyphosate than what a typical annual cropping rotation will have yeah it's um, horses for courses but i think yeah as long as we can continue to control glyphosate-resistant ryegrass, I've got at least some confidence that our business can continue to be sustainable using zero-tillage practices and certainly hopefully in the future we can start to see some new tools come through that will take the pressure off these herbicides further. So
1: if I was to kind of think about it this way, zero-tillage is essential to your system but you also wanted to increase or maintain the amount of tools that you have to control weeds across the board. You've decisively chosen to focus... Put a bit more reliance on glyphosate in your system so that you can maintain those other tools when necessary.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think like consider pretty much complete zero till to be an absolute necessity to maintain the sustainability and profitability of our business, both in terms of long-term soil health, maximizing the levels of moisture that we're retaining over the longer term. And obviously ground cover is absolute king in terms of getting decent fallow efficiencies in longer fallows like there's no no point in running long fallows if you, you've got sodic soils that have got poor soil structure and sealed over and you're just not getting that water in the ground because you're just you're not going to get ahead
1: so Tony you mentioned new technologies that you've got your own now I know that the single family is heavily involved in in new tech with the company single shot can you explain to our listeners what that involves what is single shot
2: Yeah, so if I go back to the beginning, I guess on this farm, we went down the lines of looking at cameras mounted on the boom, so optical reflectance technology. Now, I just always struggled with the return on the costs you'd have to outlay and the inconsistency of weed detection. The technology just wasn't... I really want to move towards 100% weed control before seed set and fallow as much as possible, and the existing technology wasn't going to marry up with that philosophy. Yeah, look, I guess we went searching for our own solution so my brother Ben, along with my father John, basically sat down and said, yeah, look, I think we can do something here. So many years later, the solution is is a sensor that can be mounted to a drone. You fly the paddock as a separate process at very high coverage speeds. You go away, process that data and come up with a shapefile that's suitable to be downloaded into any compatible GPS section controller. So we're generating weed maps to facilitate spot spraying where the key focus is absolutely on consistent weed detection so that we can very consistently pick up weeds down to the size of the palm of your hand and we can walk out to a paddock flight and know that any weeds above the size of a palm of the hand are, are going to be picked up. And that's really critical in terms of decision making and the sustainability of our business in terms of knowing that those weeds are going to be controlled and we don't have weeds setting seed in our fellows unnecessarily.
1: Yeah. So that's really exciting, basically um, starting up an ag tech company. How does that impact your cropping program?
2: The key for me is detaching the weed detection process from the actual spraying operation, and that gives us a whole heap of options. So first of all, we know what percentage of the paddock we're going to spray before we start. So we can select what herbicide mixtures we're going to use. We can control our costs that way so that if I'm only going to spray 5% of my paddock, I've got the option of using something like a glufosinate, which is a completely novel mode of action for this farm here. Very effective, but obviously extremely expensive. But knowing that I'm only going to spray 5% of my paddock, that makes it possible to use. The other side of that is that you might not think you've got that many weeds in your paddock. You go out and fly your paddock and all of a sudden weeds are covering 50% of your paddock that you just didn't realize. And it's it's amazing how often that happens. And again, that's really critical information that can go into your decision making in terms of how you move forward and control those weeds. We can discriminate weeds based on size, which is another really important one. We might have a fairly high percentage of weeds covering our paddock, but the majority of them might be small. So we just we wind up, for one of better words, the smallest weed that we wanted to detect. And then all of a sudden we might be only spraying ten percent of the paddock of the bigger weeds, essentially coming up with a herbicide brew to up the ante in those bigger weeds to ensure that you're not applying sub lethal doses as potentially normally would in terms of a conventional fallow spray, but your costs also aren't getting out of control on the rest of the paddock where you're just using a a standard brew, chasing smaller weeds. It doesn't necessarily have the same expense. And for me, another really key use pattern is being able to fly the paddock and map all the weeds before you spray and before a new germination comes up. So let's just say our fallows got low levels of weed coverage, we've got a few survivors floating around, and we get a big rain event come, well, we can either immediately, either before that rain event or fairly quickly after that rain event, we can go out and fly the whole farm, map all our existing weeds before any new weeds come, and then we're only targeting the existing weeds where we up put some fairly serious rates out obviously on those existing weeds to ensure we control them. And the blanket spray is only, only targeting your germination. So the net result is that typically you're going to reduce your rates in your blanket, you can still get a really effective job, do a really good job in your existing weeds. So the net result is that you've got a lower cost operation that's ultimately going to be more effective and lower risk in terms of adding to your resistance portfolio moving forward.
1: So does that mean you're doing potentially more passes or... Like you're doing more passes but you're reducing costs drastically through going through episodes as quickly?
2: Typically we're aiming, I think ultimately in the longer term, there are going to be marginally more passes than what we would do in a conventional system. But typically what we're trying to do is spot spray and blanket simultaneously with a deliberate strategy that we do we want to minimize the number of extra passes because every time you go over a paddock it has a cost and those costs are obviously going up significantly look obviously costs of machinery or cost of everything is blown out in the last 12 months and i haven't haven't updated our numbers for a while but look spraying our own With our own gear and the setup we've got in this farm, we're sort of looking at about $5 a hectare just to run the machinery over the paddock. So everything has a cost. It's about trying to leverage the resources we've got and what we do to be the most cost-effective manner. And we don't want to be in a situation where we're just constantly spraying all summer, just constantly picking up weeds that are germinating. So that's the real benefit of the system I see is that yeah, by separating the detection process from the actual spraying, it gives you that option to do more and be more effective with a single pass.
1: Well, thanks very much for your time, Tony. It was really interesting to hear how you run your farm out here and hopefully have a really good harvest and can celebrate soon the crops coming off.
2: Much appreciated. Enjoyed the chat. Thanks, Tim.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.